Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Bensvi. This podcast is an opportunity for me to speak with some of the most interesting people I know, either with amazing talents or achievements or unbelievable life stories or just invaluable insights into areas which they have dedicated their lives to studying. I sit down with these amazing individuals from across the planet and I try to ask them questions that will hopefully help you the listener extract something valuable or learn something new or just hopefully get inspired by. You can find all the episodes for the podcast on all the major podcasting platforms such as iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, iHeartRadio, literally all of them. It's there. Uh, If you love the show, if it adds value to your life in any way, shape or form, please, please leave reviews on iTunes. It really helps grow the podcast. It puts it up there so more people can see it. You can also find all the episodes and everything else, all the information that's updated regularly on the website, which is RoyBensvi.com, R-O-Y-B-E-N-T-Z-V-I.com. And you can sign up for updates as well. Also been updating the YouTube channel. So I've been uploading old episodes pretty much on a daily basis. So you can find it there. And in the future, I hope to make video podcasting as well. If that's something you guys want to check out and are interested in, please shoot me email. I'd love to hear from you. And also make sure to check out the social media platforms, Instagram and Twitter. I post there daily. And lastly, if you guys want to support and help grow the podcast, please go to Buy Me a Coffee or Anchor or Patreon. It is an endeavor to grow this podcast and make it what it should be. And uh, it takes a village. So I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I, you know, I see that there are literally listeners from all over the world in each and every country. So thank you to everyone and on to the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in for yet another episode on yet another week. And this week on the podcast, I have Jonathan Hillis. He is the creator of Creator Cabins. It is a community of remote cabins for remote workers in the Texas Hill Country. I believe, I think when I checked, it was about 45 minutes away from Austin. This beautiful place in the middle of essentially nowhere, but it's just, it's beautiful. You guys should go to Creator Cabins, go check it out. He's building a place where creators, entrepreneurs can come get away from the hustle and bustle and still meet like-minded people. It's almost a mix. It's almost like essentially we work, we live, tiny house movement and digital nomad converging into one cute little hub in the middle of, I think it's, I don't know if it's a desert, but it's definitely wilderness of Texas. And uh, yeah, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's, I think, a place to get some inspiration. Like I said, meet like-minded folks and I love it. I think we're going to see more and more of these type of hubs pop up across the country, whether it's um, cities that want to incentivize people to to come there and build it or companies going around and building it or entrepreneurs like John building these type of places because it's a no-brainer, essentially. Why not? You do not have to have proximity, physical proximity to your workspace anymore. So why not create these little mini havens all across the country where people can uh, can flourish and meet other people. So no brainer, I think. And um, 
yeah, this was a lot of fun. We talked about the creator economy. We talked about creator cabins and talked about John's history, how he came to be where he is now with uh, with this new venture. And yeah, just a lot about the creator economy and I guess the potential that, that it has and uh, the trajectory of where it's going. So if that's something that interests you, you're going to love this episode. And yeah, I had a blast as always. Uh, maybe a little bit more this time, but still, I, I always love doing this. And thank you for your support each and every week for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. So without further ado, let me introduce this week's guest. Here is Jonathan Hillis. Enjoy the episode, everyone. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you, uh, Jonathan, for coming on the podcast. I um, I heard you. It was, it's so funny. Usually, I the majority of people I have on is people that I've I've maybe read their book or I've you know I've seen them on a documentary or I've been found them on Twitter. But you, I just randomly popped on in a room in Clubhouse, and I heard you and and Sahil. And I'm not a, and we can get into Clubhouse a little bit later. I, you know, I have mixed emotions about Clubhouse, but it was one of the best. I think it was like 45 minutes uh, that I've heard in 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 a while. It was almost like a um, a high level podcast. And as soon as they finished, I just, I, you know, I I looked you up online. I was like, all right, let me find this guy because I really want to talk to him. So thanks for coming on. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that was a fun conversation, and yeah, I feel the same about Clubhouse. I think it's. Uh... It's a cool platform. You know, right now there's there's a lot of um, interesting folks and conversations happening. But um, yeah, I do wonder. You know, as as everyone gets vaccinated and the weather gets gets nicer uh, in the summer, if if you know they're going to be able to continue having as much engagement. Yeah, it's a you know we might we might as well just get into it now. But if we I the way the way I feel about it is this: everything is gearing towards um performing or or being available at the time that I want it right where before I would if I wanted to watch a show when I was young I would have to you know Thursday night at 8 p.m and I would have to watch it right then and there otherwise it's gone and now it's Netflix is on my own time YouTube is on my own time the podcasts are on everything's on my time and this is the only thing that's like and it's because it's not recorded or anything it you have to kind of show up when the thing happening. I'm like, it's such an inconvenience. And it's also, it takes up so much of your time because these rooms can go on forever. Some of these rooms go on for five, six, seven, eight hours. And that's just the one thing that I find a, a, a bit problematic, you know? And on top of that, there's a, a whole slew of these hustlepreneurs right. and rooms with people that I'm not really interested to, to hear. But a converse, but once in a while, you'll find a conversation like the one where I heard you in Sahil. And that's just a golden nugget, you know. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I um, love what you said about the kind of live aspect and how that makes it more challenging. Um, you know, I, w- I was actually just talking to another founder that I work with uh, today. Her name's Anna Gott, and she has started what I think is one of the most magical communities on the internet right now. It's called Interintellect, and um, it's these live discussions about. Um, you know, a, a wide range of topics, 
And, and, you know, something that she was talking about that I thought was really interesting is the analogy between, um, you know, interintellect and, and television. And she said the same thing you said, right? That, um, the hard part about these, uh, these live events is that they, they, you know, only happen once they're not recorded. Um, you have to show up and it, it feels a lot like TV did 30 years ago where it's like, yeah. oh man, I have to like put this into my schedule. Um, what I think though is interesting about that, and this maybe gets at, at sort of the difference between two types of clubhouse rooms. Um, you know, one type of clubhouse room is a discussion that's really just happening between a couple people. And then there's like thousands of people listening and you can get some great discussions, right? Where you've got like Elon Musk pulls up the, the GameStop, you know, CEO on stage and is out and like, that's incredible, yeah. but it's not interactive. And so it doesn't really feel like it needs to be live. It could just as easily be a, a podcast that you listen to later. The, the clubhouse conversations that I think are actually more magical, if you can find the right ones, are the small group discussions where you've got, you know, just a handful of people you can pop in and it's actually, you know, engaging. You actually can participate in the discussion. And what, what Anna, the founder of Internet said to me today is that she thinks that's the next television that, you know, most content will be consume on your own whenever you want. But if you want to have this sort of like small group, engaging, direct, interactive conversation, that that is going to emerge as this thing that, of course, still needs to happen in real time, and as a result, is going to take on some of the same dynamics that television took on, you know, when it first came out. I mean, that's that's fascinating. The, I guess the funny thing about Clubhouse is audio has kind of been ruled out. Even if you look at Apple, right? They haven't really invested in their podcasting platform. They've kind of put that to the side. That and you know, for the as a podcaster. Their analytics is horrific. It's it's pretty much non-existent. It's still in beta, and I mean we're in 2021. It's it's ridiculous. So That's I feel crazy. like audio has not really been invested in right now. Because I don't know if if it's because Spotify has ramped it up or or Clubhouse or now there's locker room right. There's all and now it seems like everyone kind of is jumping on the bandwagon of of Clubhouse and everyone's trying to make a version of that. Right, Twitter, Slack, all these different companies right. are like, we're going to incorporate that into into whatever we're doing. The, again, the only thing I feel about Clubhouse and in the beginning, I was just, I was so excited about it. I thought it was brilliant. You know, I was the the one of the the chief uh, um, supporters of it. Yeah. And after being an, on it for a while, I just, I think, like you said, there are. Not everyone, I'm not interested in what everyone has to say. I'm interested in what right. specific people have to say. And that's why I follow certain people. But when you have a room where there's 50 people have the option of talking, uh, you lose me. Like you said, I, I, I much prefer the, the smaller rooms where it's you and maybe two, three, four other people talking and they really have benefit versus people who just want to be heard rather than having actually something to say. Totally. Yeah. And that's a great point about the kind of other benefit of small rooms is um, the promoters are not going to be in those rooms because there's no one to promote to, right? Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> no shilling in a room of, you know, 10 people talking about something. It's just an actual conversation. And um, there's a, a guy I know, 
named Hadar Dor, who started this this um, clubhouse club that that I'm a part of called Societech, and he just managed to pull together a bunch of interesting you know product managers and and other folks from the technology industry, and we just hop on every week and you know talk about a, a new topic of the week related to technology and society, and they're fascinating conversations, right? It's the sort of thing that you get normally sitting around a dinner table. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm excited to get back to the dinner tables, but I do also think there's a place for those sort of small live discussions to continue happening online. Yeah. Have you found that, have people reached out to you since that, since you've had that, um, that clubhouse room, uh, conversation with Sahil? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, um, I got, ended up with a whole lot of, uh, you know, Twitter followers and clubhouse followers as, as a result of that conversation. But, um, yeah, I really attribute that to Sahil and the, the community that he's built and curated. Um, I think the work that he's doing is, is fascinating and groundbreaking. And I think that, you know, he's, he's looking at the same, uh, venture funding models and companies that, everyone else is looking at, but he's got a fresh take. And I think that um, the sort of things he's doing now that seem, you know, that are innovative and, and new are things that are going to be much more mainstream, you know, in the, in the next decade. Yeah. And I think, I, I feel like I was shitting on Clubhouse a little bit too much. So let me praise it as well. I think the nice thing about it is, is the immediacy of it, right? Like you and Sayil, boom, you jump on a room, get into this great conversation, a thousand people listen, you know, X amount of them go follow you and reach out and that part. And, you know, that's a little bit harder to do, let's say in a podcast form where I have to reach out, we have to set up a date. That's a little bit more rigid in that sense. This is a little bit more free flowing. And hey, if it doesn't work out, it's not recorded. No one's, you know, no one missed out or anything. It was a 30 minute conversation that maybe didn't end up well, but has a lot of upside if it did go well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that serendipity is a lot of the magic of the internet. Yeah. This is also what you see on Twitter, um, is that it's those those connections that get made that you weren't expecting is where, where all the value comes from. And the kind of downside of that is it means you have to sit around hanging out, you know, waiting for the serendipity to happen sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but when it does, it's it's magical. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, all right, so... You know, I wanted I wanted to get to Clubhouse later. I'm glad we got that out the way. But maybe give us a little bit of a background about yourself before we get into what what you currently do. Uh, just run us up to speed so the listeners can get a better feel for for who you are and what you do. Yeah, definitely. So um, my name is John Hillis. I um, am currently working on a lot of projects to try to increase the GDP of the creator economy. And, um, you know, the, the probably biggest of those projects right now is Creator Cabins. I'm sitting right now in, in the first Creator Cabin, and we've got the, the second cabin um, is made out of shipping containers. It's, it's built right now out in California. It's going to be delivered in about a week and a half here. Um, and then, you know, we, we would really love to have a lot of online independent creators come out and spend time here in the Texas Hill Country, about 45 minutes outside of Austin, um, and start bringing some of that serendipity of the internet that we were talking about into real life. Um, and so, you know, that, that's one, one piece of the puzzle, but when I take a step back and I look at the creator economy, um, you know, I think having these sort of in-person spaces is going to be an important part of the infrastructure. Um, I also think funding models are going to be a really important part of the infrastructure. This is part of what I love about what Sahil is doing. Um, 
is, you know, he's, he's taking a different look at it and he's saying this venture capital model doesn't really work for creators. So um, similarly, I've, I've started the Creator Fellowship, which is an income sharing agreement for creators. Um, I'm trying to find other ways to build some of the infrastructure that can support the creator economy. My background is in product. I spent uh, about six years at Instacart where I led product teams and, and particularly led the shopper product team, um, which helped me think a lot about the future of work and independent, flexible online work and how we can unlock the ability for a whole lot more money uh, to be created for people that are independently earning online. Well, that's awesome. How, how was it working for Instacart? Did you like it? Yeah, I did. I loved it. Um, Instacart was a really transformative career experience for me. Um, and, and I, I really believe in, uh, the product and the, the people that are working there. Um, and, you know, I think I went there with the intention to learn how great companies and great products are built. Um, but I also went with the intention to take that knowledge and, and one day go do my own thing. So, um, it felt like the right time for me to leave and, and, you know, take some of those learnings and, and go off on my own. So you said um, you want to increase the GDP of the creator economy. Can you expand, I guess, what that means and what exactly is the creator economy for some people who may not uh, fully understand? Yeah. So, you know, I think the creator economy has become a a bit of a buzzword over the past six months. And, um, uh, you know, when I started working on it, we, we weren't calling it that. I think there were still a bunch of names people were, were throwing around, but it seems like that's the one people have settled on. I think all it really means is um, people earning money independently online by building personal monopolies. So let me, let me unpack that a little bit. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, first of all, I think that the most important part of it is that it's individuals that are going directly to their customers. They're saying, I don't, I don't need to be a part of a company to, to make money. You know, I can do it myself. And I think the important distinction then between the say creator economy and gig economy is that the, the creator economy is about um, building a personal monopoly. It's figuring out what you do that's unique that nobody else can do, whether that's, you know, creating a podcast or writing code or starting a newsletter, um, you know, or whatever, um, and figuring out the unique thing that you can contribute to the world and find your true fans. And um, I wrote, wrote a blog post about the sort of like six levels of the creator economy. So if you think about if you as an individual, you have a goal of saying, I want to make, let's say, $100,000 a year. Okay, how can you do that? You can make $1 a year from 100,000 people. Okay, that's sort of like an influencer type thing. Or maybe you're monetizing through micro uh, payments or ads or something like that. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, you can say, okay, I want to make $100,000 a year from one entity, which is basically just a job, right? That's like a normal job. Uh, And then there's every level in between, right? And so you can think about what are the business models? What are the, um, you know, the types of products that make sense if I'm going to have a community that's really small, maybe it's only a hundred people, but they're willing to pay me a lot more money because I can provide value or maybe it's thousands of people, you know? Um, And so you, you can look at these sort of different levels of the creator economy and there's a, a, a wide uh, diversity of different ways that you can make money and and find your audience and create the right product. What are the other four? Yeah, um, 
So look, this is just a framework that I came up with. I don't think um, it's certainly not, you know, written in stone and, and would love to continue to get feedback and, and you know, develop it. But um, the way that I had it structured is you have the, the influencer economy, which is 100,000 people at $1 a year. Okay, then you have something like the, the you know, and that's monetized through things like ads, micropayments, affiliates. Then you have something like um, 10,000 people, you know, that are paying you $10 a year. And that's kind of traditional gig economy, um, these transactional gigs or things like, you know, drop shipping or eBooks or whatever. Um, that's, that's like a, a pretty challenging competitive market. Um, you know, then you have the fan economy, which is the thousand people that are willing to give you a hundred dollars a year. And the name here comes from, uh, Kevin Kelly's, um, original essay on this very early on, you know, talking about the thousand true fans, and this is the model that we really saw developed with things like Patreon, you know, subscription newsletter content, that sort of thing. Um, then you have what, what Legion has termed the passion economy, which is, okay, a thousand people at a hundred dollars a year is good. What about a hundred people that are willing to give you a thousand dollars a year? So you've really upped the ante in terms of the quality of product you have to provide to people, but you can have a much smaller audience. So this is often things like online courses, coaching, tutoring, you know, and then the next step up you have. 10 uh, people willing to give you $100,000 a year. And you know, I've called this, the, and other people have called it the indie economy. And this is things like indie consulting, you know, niche SaaS businesses where um, you can maybe create software that you can sell to a company at a, a pretty high rate. You don't need that many customers. And then, you know, like, like I said earlier, if you just want to get all of your money from, from one person or entity, uh, we, we just call that a job. <laughs> yeah, the the least uh, the least interesting out of all those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's you know I, I I'll be honest I have I mean I guess I did work a nine to five but I've never worked the the, the kind of the traditional nine to five it's just not something that was ever really I don't know and it was never interesting to me to pursue that that type of job and and it seems like. Whenever you, whenever you hear, especially when I hear like the, 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 the guru influencers, right. The hustlepreneur type, it's very, it's almost so easy for them to try to convince you to, to live this lifestyle that you'll always hear. Oh, you have to like nine to five is synonymous with, with death. Like nine to five is almost like the worst thing on earth that you can have. And I don't know, I have a lot of friends that have a nine to five. And they like it. Like when when I approach them, sometimes I'm like, you know, we I have this idea. Maybe we can do this together. Like, what do you think? They're like, ah, you know, like I, I like my job. I like I like yeah. my nine to five. I you know I, yeah. So I, th yeah, I think no, there's I think there's room it. for I think there's room. There's like a big gamut. There's room for for everything. Absolutely. I think I I totally agree. I'm not you know most people. Uh, getting a paycheck every two weeks is like, that's a pretty good thing. Um, yeah. There's a lot of stability to that. Um, you know, I think the, the difference is just that I believe in increased opportunities for flexibility. And, you know, I think that's the thing that's really changing is for a long time, jobs were kind of the only game in town. And, yeah. and now you've got a whole lot more options. And um, for most people there, they're still going to want to do the job thing. But um, for a lot of people, it's at least worth taking a step back and saying, hey, should I consider these other new options that that didn't exist before? It also used to be that you you would have a job for life, right? Yes. Like you would, you would get that one job and maybe you would have two, where now 
you know, you're switching out different jobs all the time until you find something that, you know, that is a passion. Like now yeah. it's not about making money. It's about, oh, I want to follow my passion. I want to do something that I align with. Yeah. And ideally you can do both. But but I think that's a really good point that, you know, um, the, the deal, the contract that people used to make with companies was I will work for you for life and you will provide me a job for life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And in particular, I think, um, you know, Japan really epitomized this. Uh, there's some great writing about the, um, you know, Japanese company man where like it doesn't, you know, the, it, that is a real deal that you can take in, in Japan where really? it doesn't matter if the company doesn't need you anymore. They will keep giving you a job, even if that job is literally just like coming in and sitting at a desk in the corner for eight hours a day, um, because that's the contract that you've sort of made with society. And I think the reality is that contract is changing a lot. Um, and if we, we really think about the mechanics of that contract, um, you know, w- without getting too technical here, there's an interesting economic underpinning for why that contract has changed. And, um, you know, companies certainly don't feel that that level of commitment to people anymore, but people also don't need to feel that level of commitment to companies. And the reason is that transaction costs have fallen. So there's this guy named Ronald Coase, uh, and he won a Nobel Prize, I believe in the 70s for this idea um, he wrote a, an essay called The Nature of the Firm. And he was trying to answer the question, why do companies even exist? And you know, the, if you look at, at sort of traditional economic theory, it assumes there are no transaction costs, which means anybody can just do business with anyone. It doesn't cost anybody anything to, to do business, uh, to make exchanges. There's no friction. And so uh, he said, well, if that's the case, then there shouldn't be companies. Everybody should just be independent contractors. And you know, But companies clearly exist. Why is that? And he posited that it's because there actually are transaction costs and because what companies can do is they can take everybody and put them in you know, one thing and say, we'll give you a salary. And in exchange, we don't have to make a deal every time. We just tell you what to do and we can change that. And you do it. Um, but what's interesting is now those transaction costs are actually falling very rapidly, right? So you look at something like an Uber, you look at something like an Instacart, um, you can open up your phone and you can look at a specific unit of work and you can say, okay, do I want this? Do I not want this? Here's what the job is. Here's how much money it pays, except decline. And that is a big difference in terms of the, the role of the firm or the company. And you know that, that's really something that software is unlocking that makes it so that I, I believe that the creator economy um, you know, is going to be a lot bigger in the future as a result. Yeah, it's it's democratized a lot of industries that that were held up by, I guess, monopolies early on or or for a very long time at least. I think Naval said that in the future we'll be we'll be we'll all be working for ourselves essentially, and he said the information age is going to reverse the industrial age. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, you know, I've I've tried to do some writing about this, and I I um, haven't really nailed down my my perspective 100. percent But I do think that um, that there's something to that, and that the if you look at the industrial age and what it did to labor, um, a big part of it was assembly lines and this idea that you could make all the parts interchangeable, but you could also make the labor interchangeable, and um, as a result, you know, that really like 
made it so that it if you wanted labor to be interchangeable you 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 know wanted people to show up at a certain time and work you know a certain number of hours and then if they couldn't show up you could slot somebody else in in the exact same thing and the whole economy was sort of built on these ideas and that that's where you know things like 9 to 5s come from and so yes i think that um, we saw some of the early marketplaces starting to unbundle and, you know, atomize these units of work, but that that's really where, where we're headed for all jobs. And that, um, what's exciting about that is that not only, um, you know, does it give people flexibility, but it also allows them to, uh, build these personal monopolies to figure out what is the thing that they do best, you know, that, that no one else in the world can do like they can do. Yeah. I feel like it's, if for people outside of tech, it seems daunting sometimes. And with with the rapid advance in technology, I, I I'll be honest, I can barely keep up, right? Like there's yeah. NFTs and there's Bitcoin, and there's BitClout, and then there's yeah, there's it feels and there are new ways of working and new um SaaS companies that are coming out and new um ways of 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 changing ideas and of buying goods and of selling of goods and you know finance everything is has been kind of rapidly changing and, it, and I think COVID even you know propelled that even more yeah. and I think that's why sometimes people outside of tech and maybe people who are maybe a little bit older maybe they don't fully understand it they look at it as oh it's it's just moving too fast. But it is, uh, but even I, I, for me, like I, that I try to keep up with, with the trends, I'm like, dude, there's just, it, it feels like sometimes it's too, too much too quick, where before I, I fully understand what the one thing is, there's two new things that come out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think we're in a real Cambrian explosion moment. Um, and, you know, I think crypto is a great example of this. You know, we went from kind of the early crypto cycles where, uh, Bitcoin was was the story, right? And then there yeah. was ETH, and um, you know now now you know there's NFTs, but there's also all of these other things going on. It's not just you know one thing anymore. Now there's a whole uh, Cambrian explosion of of other um, you know ways people are starting to use these technologies, and it is it's hard to keep up with. And I think that um, you know one of the the things that we're really going to have to figure out as individuals and and collectively, you know, as economies is um, how do we make sure that people can continue to stay up to date with, with the changes because um, it ties exactly into what you were, you were saying, right. We're not um, getting into one job for 40 years anymore. We're, we're changing careers uh, sometimes multiple times a day. (laughs) And if you're going to do that, like um, you, you know, you really do have to keep up. I find that exciting. Um, you know, I come from from the technology background where I, I'm a real optimist about this sort of thing. Where you know, I, I think it's really cool to to stay up to date with these new things, but also totally understand that it can be really overwhelming for a lot of people. No, I I, I love it. I, you know, and and now, like you said, nowadays there's not one job. Everyone has you know, three or six or nine or 15 different revenue streams and they're doing podcastings and YouTubes and they're, you know, opening up, I don't know, the rolling funds and whatever it is they're doing. Everyone's doing multiple things and they're wearing multiple hats because they understand that technology allows us this leverage to to, to essentially leverage our our skills, our goods, our services, right? And, and maximize that 
throughout the entire world. It's not just like, I'm not just selling in New York City. I can sell anywhere and people can listen to my voice everywhere. I have people, you know, in countries I can barely pronounce that listen to the podcast, which is, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and I think that diversification of revenue streams is a really important part of it, right? As technologies are changing quickly, um, you, you need to be diversified because um, that's how you stay resilient to change. That's how you make sure that, um, you know, if one platform changes, you have the ability to port things over to another or if, you know, one revenue stream dies, okay, you, you've got something else going on. And to your point earlier, that's not going to be for everyone, right? There are some people who just want to show up at the nine to five and, and get the consistent paycheck, but that's not as safe as it used to be because the company also, you know, doesn't, uh, everything else is changing around them. And so, um, if you don't do that sort of diversification, you can really end up in a, in a high risk spot in a way that didn't used to be the case. Yeah. No, I, look, I understand people want security. Um, doing something on your own is not the secure route, especially in the beginning, you know, in the beginning, as you know, as, as any kind of entrepreneur knows, in the beginning, it's going to be rough. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of uh, income and you just got to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So yeah, in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. You know, I, I think you do have to optimize for, for the long term. That is really hard for, for people, right? Because they have payments they need to make now. They have needs, you know, especially if they've got, they have a family or, or these sorts of things. Um, you know, the, they can't wait around for a year to start making money. And this is why I think funding models are so important. Um, this is why I think that innovation in how people get paid is going to be the most important part um, that we need to figure out in the next couple of years for the creator economy. Because, you know, you look at the American dream of, of kind of the 20th century of home ownership. Well, that didn't really start to become a thing until financial structures were in place that allowed people to get 30-year fixed-rate mortgage loans. Before that, only you know wealthy people, for the most part, owned, owned homes. Um, and that American dream was unlocked by the financial model. And so um, I think that a similar thing is going to happen with the creator economy. You know, if you think about um, owning your own business as, as sort of the next American dream, uh, what we really need is you know, new innovative structures for, um, uh, income sharing for, um, you know, crypto based stuff, uh, that, that enables crowdfunding in interesting ways for, um, these sort of models that can, can let people, um, you know, see some of the financial benefits of what they're doing sooner in the cycle. So I will quote you because I thought it, that I actually read that blog post, Building a profitable, sustainable remote business that can run from anywhere, scales nicely, and print money is the new American dream. I love that line. I thought that was great. Yeah, thank you. And I think uh, either that is a paraphrased or, or a quote maybe from uh, Tyler Tringas um, via David Perel. Um, and they've both written some great stuff about this. You know, Tyler is um, um, the general partner at a fund called Earnest Capital. Um, and I, I'm an LP in the fund, full disclosure, but I really believe in, in what they're doing. Um, and it's an income sharing based model, right? He's looking at this and saying, okay, this venture capital model doesn't really work for, for people who want to build these businesses. And it's not even necessary anymore. Now it's so easy, you know, to, to, um, 
spin up a server, right? Or to um, get access to SaaS tools that even 10 years ago would have cost a whole lot of money and a whole lot of, of development to make happen. Um, now these things are accessible in a way where you really can scale a business as, as an individual. Yeah. Even podcasts. I mean, doing a podcast from what I've heard 15 years ago was a headache. It was it was not an easy feat. And nowadays, you know, I can start a podcast in, in literally five minutes. You know, I download Anchor. I don't have to have a mic. I mean, mic is just for added quality and I can talk and put it out there and I have a podcast. I mean, it's literally that easy. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, Creator Cabins. How you know, when did that idea start to brew and when did you start to, I, I'm assuming COVID is probably a, a big uh, factor, but you know, when did this uh, start to come to fruition? Yeah. So it's certainly uh, a business that I think has been validated in a lot of ways by, by COVID, but um, the idea predates that. And, you know, I think with, with any entrepreneur, um, it's it's probably possible to trace the origin story to some extent back to um, your childhood. And you know, for me, um, I my the first job I ever wanted as a kid was I wanted to be an architect. And then I found out that you have to go to school for like ten years and do apprenticeships <laughs> and all this stuff. So I was like, okay, maybe not that. Yeah. But, um, but I always, you know, kept that in the back of my mind and um, had talked with with my you know dad about building a cabin in the woods, and it was this this idea um, that stayed latent. And then um, you know, actually, a, a couple years ago, this would have been in um, 2018, right around this time, actually in April. Um, my my boss uh, at Instacart, uh, one of my my mentors and just uh, one of the best product people I've ever had the the privilege of working with, David Hahn, um, looked at me and he said, "Man, you are burnt out. You know, you've been running, <laughs> you know, the the sprint for for the marathon, um, and you got to take a break and um, you know go sit on a beach somewhere." And so I know this is like the most stereotypical thing, but I. Uh, I, you know, bought a ticket to Thailand like the next week and went to this like remote island off the southeast coast of Thailand and um, tried to get as off the grid as I could and sat on this beach and, um, you know, thought about what I wanted to do with my life and tried to kind of pull together some of these different strands. And, um, and what I realized there was that there was this different lifestyle that I was seeing some people in Thailand live. And I, I had some friends back home that were doing that I thought was going to be much bigger in the future, um, which was this sort of, you know, digital nomad type lifestyle. Um, but I, I think there's a, a version of it that is going to become much more mainstream. And, you know, this was obviously rapidly accelerated by COVID where people are working remotely more and, you know, they may want to go back to the office. They may not. Uh, I think different people will want to do different things, but at least a decent portion of people will want to have the flexibility to live and work where and when they want to work. Yeah. And um, Creator Cabins is all about that. It's it's a remote uh, set of cabins in the Texas Hill Country uh, for remote workers and independent online creators. And I think, you know, the the, the idea is to take the serendipity of, of these sort of internet connections, bring them into the real world and um, give people a place to connect. And then, you know, I think the, the secret long-term plan um, is to have more of these sites and to have it be almost a decentralized city. And this won't be just creator cabins. I hope a whole lot of people will start building these sort of communities around the 
world and that people will then be able to kind of travel from place to place. And in the same way that right now, or maybe five or 10 years ago, if you were a young, ambitious person, you had to go to a New York or a San Francisco if you really wanted to be around a, a community of like-minded people who were you know, young and ambitious and working on the big next thing. I want the next city to not be a city at all, but to be a whole network of these, these places where we can meet online um, and then get together in person. So do you think we're going to reach a point, and I mean, maybe we already are, but that before, right, like you said, you would have to be either in California or New York, and those were kind of like the two big hubs. And COVID essentially started to spread people all across the country where they realized, wait, why am I paying this premium and I'm not actually receiving anything and I'm living in a one bedroom and now I have to work from home and I'm starting to go crazy and I need to, I need space. I need to go somewhere. And we, st- we started seeing people, right, move to Miami, move to Texas. Well, I, I guess... I guess it's two questions. Why Texas do you think has become so popular? I don't know if it's with with state income tax or or because you know it's it's a little bit more free. I'm not sure exactly what. Maybe you can enlighten us. And I guess the second question is, do you see more of these type of communities? Whereas before you would see maybe like a WeWork, right? Where New York had I don't know how many WeWorks, but it was a shit ton of WeWorks. Now uh, an outdoors uh, WeWorks, kind of like what I not exactly what like we're doing, but something similar start to spring up across all these different hubs across the U.S. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think the answer is a resounding yes. I think that um, even the question of, you know, what's the next big tech hub? Oh, is, you know, is it Miami? Is it Austin? Uh, is it San Francisco again? Like, I think that's just the wrong question because I think the answer is all of the above and more. Right. I think we're at the point now where um, the Internet is not uh, just something that like weird people over here are doing. It's a thing everyone is doing, of course. And software similarly is is, um, you know, it's not a, an industry. It's all industries are, mm-hmm. are going to be empowered by software. And so the same thing is going to happen with cities. There's not one tech hub. Uh, everywhere is going to need to be a tech hub in the future. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we're already starting to see the beginning of that. We're going to see a whole lot more of it. Um, you know, in terms of, of why Texas, uh, I can give a personal answer and I can speculate a little bit on why other people are moving here. Um, you know, I grew up in Austin. I was born and raised here. And um, I think it's just a great place to, to grow up. And, you know, when my, my wife and I were starting to think about, um, you know, where we wanted to raise a family in the future, uh, there's a lot of great reasons to, to be in the Austin area. There's beautiful nature. There's, you know, good weather for most of the year. There's um, a lot of, uh, you know, live music and, and arts and um, you know, a strong culture, great people. You walk down the streets and people, you know, wave at you and say hi, which like never happens to me in California. Um, and it doesn't happen in New York either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just a different, different vibe. And, you know, I really like that. I, I like that kind of community. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to be 
uh, a great place to be and and to spend time and and also you know potentially to, to raise a family. Um, I think that's that's the sort of thing you know people are, are looking for. You know the other stuff. Look, the state governments it matters. Um, I'm sure some people are are kind of optimizing for taxes, but I, I don't think that's like really the this the story, right? Um, uh, I do know that it's a lot easier to build here. I can tell you that um, if I wanted to start. Uh, creator cabins in uh, you know in the Bay Area, it'd be nearly impossible. And here, um, you know, it's it's quite easy. We can we can build a, a new cabin uh, pretty much other than like a, um, submitting a form for the septic permit and for the electricity hookup. You know, they the government's not asking a lot of questions and yeah. requiring a lot of forms and stuff. Right? They they're just like, okay, cool. You you do your thing. And um, I think that is going to allow for, for a lot of growth and, and for, um, you know, housing supply to meet the demand in a way that, um, I, I appreciate and, and wish we could see in, in places like California as well. Well, I think this could actually be a, a massive boon for certain places. It could like re revitalize economies, right? It, you know, I see this almost as a missed opportunity for, certain cities that need these young tech, whatever tech is, because tech is everything is tech now, but these young tech people to come in, you know, enthusiastic, build communities there. And like, they could really, you know, if they, if, if certain cities find ways, I don't know, maybe they even build a creator cabin or they incentivize them by whatever it is. I, I, I don't know what it could be, but there are, because you don't need to be, in proximity to your work anymore, right? You can just be anywhere. And instead of, you know, let's say you're making a 200K or 150K a year. And before you were living in San Francisco and you were spending 150K, meaning you're making right. nothing. Now you can make 150 and spend 50. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just, it just, you just have to find the right place. Yeah. No. And look, I think it's healthy. It's, it's healthy competition between states. This is, yeah. I think, a big part of why. Um, the United States was was set up as this federal system so that we would see innovation happening you know, be between states. And uh, I certainly think that's we're already starting to see this play out. You, uh, you know, before before we started, I think you mentioned Tulsa. Tulsa is a, a place that I'm keeping an eye on because um, I think they're they're starting to say I think they're, they're even doing some sort of direct payments or grants uh, for, for you know people in technology jobs that are, are interested in moving there um, you know we, we may see more of that sort of thing um, the the mayor of Miami you know as we've all seen is is just this um, He's a one man powerhouse of, of like literally, you know, Miami did not have some big flourishing tech scene and he's trying to tweet it into existence. And I think that model, you know, is actually something that we're going to see a whole lot more of from politicians in the future, more proactive engagement with online communities, you know, to try to recruit the, the best and the brightest. Yeah. What he's done is remarkable. I don't think and and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've seen any other politician use Twitter as um, efficiently and as as smart as as he's been using it in the past, you know, twelve to to eighteen months. Yeah, well, and for for good, right? For I good, yeah. 
the unfortunate reality here is that <laughs> I, I don't want to get too much into politics, but you know, I think our, our former president uh, definitely figured out how to use Twitter effectively, <laughs> um, but uh, but not in such a constructive way, perhaps, right? So that's but, an understatement, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what I love about you know what Francis Suarez is doing is you know the the, the tweet that sparked all of this was him asking, "How can I help?" Right. And that's that's the magic of the Internet is if, if you're willing to go and find the right communities and ask, how can I help? Um, really great things can happen. And I think I think that's the sort of energy we're going to see from a whole lot more politicians in the future. Okay, You're optimistic. That's uh, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a, an unabashed. Optimist. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I just don't have as much faith in our politicians, but uh, I hope I get proved wrong. Well, they're going to have to, right? So I, I saw a really interesting um, uh, article, I think David Perel was tweeting about that, um, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but in, um, I want to say, Brazil or, or certainly a South American country, they're starting to see YouTubers that are getting elected to public offices by really? overwhelming margins. And you know, I think uh, in this particular case, some of their, you know, I, I certainly don't know much about the politics of, of South America, but I think, um, you know, some of them are maybe not not politicians I would personally agree with. But I think the trend is is interesting, and I think that um, the reason why we're we're going to see more of this is not because politicians you know, want to do it or because we want them to do it. It's like, that's what's going to work. That's how they're going to get elected in the future. If they don't, they don't have an online following, uh, they're going to have a lot of trouble competing with people who do. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. They're just, um, some of them are just hopeless, but, but, you know, I do hope that good ones rise to the top and, uh, maybe it'll be a good, uh, filtering out process and we will see who's more authentic, who actually cares. And, the bad ones just maybe hopefully get weeded out, but yeah. And, and look, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's going to go both ways, right? People, we've seen this already. People with extreme political views are, are actually quite effective at using, um, algorithms that, that optimize for engagement and that can lead to some really dangerous places. So we need to have the right checks and balances in place. But, um, you know, I really do believe that the, the, long arc of moral progress or technological progress does bend towards justice or at least towards better things yeah that's yeah yeah i i think i agree with that i think my it, we're, we might be seeing a little blimp in that in that arc right now a little dense absolutely yep but like you said if you look at it it's it's a marathon not a sprint right if i look at the overarching over decades it'll still probably you know, keep going up and, and keep uh, improving. Yeah, I think yeah. that sort of a long-term view is actually a, a very helpful way to live your life because if you get too caught up in the in the day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month or even year-to-year, um, you know, you, you're going to uh, get swept up in the sort of feelings of, of the moment. And if you're willing to take a step back and really think, not what do I want tomorrow, but you know what do I want a decade from now, or what do I think the world is going to look like a decade from now? So few people are willing to to do that from first principles that it becomes a huge competitive advantage. Yeah, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, creator cabins because I, first of all, I love the idea, but 
I love hearing how people build things, and I also love hearing about their struggles <laughs> yeah. because because that's real, right? Like struggles are real. Struggles are part of building something. And I guess what have been some of the obstacles that you that you face so far? Things that maybe threw you off that you weren't expecting. Oh my God! Yeah, so <laughs> many, so many things to talk about here. I mean, um, I would not recommend you know custom home construction for the faint of heart. Um, I would not recommend uh, working with uh, you know novel materials or processes like. Um, remotely constructed, you know, shipping container homes for the, the, the um, faint of heart. I mean, you know, there's a great a quote I heard recently that if you're on the bleeding edge, you're going to bleed. Um, and I certainly feel like I'm on the bleeding edge and, and I've done some bleeding. Um, you know, one, one just like quick, but a very specific story or example here is, you know, just up the road at this new um, site where we're putting in the cabin, I've been been working on all the infrastructure, you know, getting the um, foundation and the well and the water lines and electricity and, you know, all at the septic, all this stuff um, ready for the container delivery. And um, I've learned a tremendous amount <laughs> through that process. I've certainly made some mistakes. Um, right now, I've got a big trench sitting up there. I've got about a hundred and you know seventy foot trench in the ground, um, and there's an electric line running through it right now. There's a high speed internet line running through it because we're going to bring in some custom internet infrastructure to make sure we have high speed bandwidth here. Um, and you know, I need to figure out the water. And uh, as you know, as, as everyone knows about whatever that was uh, a month or, or six weeks or whatever ago, um, there was a huge winter storm in Texas. And it just made everything a whole lot more complicated. Um, that was such know, a freaky thing that just happened, right? Wild. Yeah, it was totally wild. I've, I've, you know, like I said, born and raised here in Austin, never seen anything like it. Wow. Um, I was out here when when it started at the cabins, and I got so freaked out by the weather, um, you know, that I drove into Austin to be at my parents' place because um, I didn't know what it was going to be like out here, and I also was worried about them in Austin. Yeah. Um, and it ended up being really good that, you know, I, I was with them. Um, so they, you know, lost, lost water and had some pipes burst and stuff like that. Um, but it meant that, you know, not only did we have some, some damage out here that I needed to deal with when I got back out, uh, it also meant that it's impossible to get plumbers or even plumbing equipment anywhere in central Texas right now. And so I've got this trench in the ground. I can't find a plumber to put a pipe in. Uh, from the well to the house, I need to get this this pipe in and this trench filled before the cabin gets delivered in a week and a half, so they can drive over the trench and and set the cabin on the foundation. And can't find the equipment, can't find the pipes, can't find a plumber. And I'm I'm like, I'm just gonna have to figure out how to do this thing myself. So I spent literally hours yesterday watching YouTube tutorials on trench backfilling and pipe diameters and types of pipe. And I mean, just all this stuff I had no idea I was ever going to have to learn about. Um, but that's how, just how good are those videos though, right? Like YouTube. Amazing. Great. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I love the internet. I love YouTube. You can go on and like, there's, you know, dozens of people that are doing these like crazy videos on, on specific pipe yeah. trench backfill. I mean, it's just like, it's incredible what you can do. And they're good. On. It's not they're crap. Good. It's good. Yeah. 
yeah, there's there's high quality content from professionals walking you through every piece of it. The guy talking about the pipe types and the guy talking about the backfill materials. And I mean, it, it's amazing. Um, but that's my week, right? I'm, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to get this freaking pipe in and trench filled before the cabins show up. And uh, it just has to get done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I um, I worked I worked in construction for a few years when I was younger. And, um, you know, building essentially houses for, for other people. And look, it's a hassle, man. Like I, I, I commend you. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not easy. It's not yeah. easy. There's you know, so I, many logistics, so many problems, so many different people you have to talk to. And then once you think you figured it out, there are new problems that come. It's just, it's Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very grateful for my background as a product manager because I think that's somewhat like being a general contractor on a construction mm -hmm. project. And so that's been very helpful. But, um, you know, I think the construction industry is sort of the original gig economy. Um, it's, it's all contractors. And uh, that's cool because you can piece projects together with, with a bunch of different people. And I think I've actually learned some about, you know, how to think about the future of, of um, gig work from, from doing this project. But it also means, man, they, they don't have good software systems. So, um, you know, people are flaky in the Hill Country right now. There's tons of stuff being built out. And so they have plenty of work and they, you know, it's hard to get anyone to do anything. Um, but I'm just learning a lot about it. I mean, I've been enjoying getting my hands, you know, dirty and, and starting to, um, not only learn about the specifics of each of these trades, but, but actually do some of it. I think, um, you know, my wife who's out here, uh, working on this project with me, um, is uh, you know maybe starting to have some some regrets about giving me the uh, the thumbs up to do it all, but I think it's going to feel really great in a month. You know, when, yeah. when it's all done. You know, it's crazy. We um we had some plumbing issues here a few weeks back, and and we're in, we're in New England, so other side of the country. And the plumber comes, he looks at everything, and you know he write, gives us a quote, and I, I look at the quote, I'm like, that's it seems excessive. He was like, well. You know, right now, because what's happening in Texas, PVC pipes are like triple the price. And I just never put that, that, that I never connected the dots that a, a work, uh, a plumbing job in New England is somehow connected to what's happening in Texas, which I thought was kind of wild. Yeah, no, global supply chains are crazy right now. I mean, you look at, you know, uh, Evergreen. The fun we were having, yeah, with Ever Given last week, right? Like the best Twitter memes I've seen in a while, but oh, they're great. Has real impacts on global supply chains. Yeah, makes it so it's it's hard to get materials. No, no toilet. I I keep saying just use Japanese toilets. You don't need toilet paper. It's just it's a waste. <laughs> it's a waste. It's just such a waste. I was in Japan two years ago. I couldn't believe this is not what the whole world was using. I'm like, I don't know why. It's the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, do you do you envision what you're doing? Companies do so. Let's say you know, take whatever tech company. Let's say Gumroad, just as an example, right? And they they're like, you know what? Like we 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 like the the office model, but it's outdated. Let's go and build our little community somewhere in wherever Colorado, yeah. and bring all our employees there and create a little mini community for ourselves. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. Um, you know, one one little side project I have um, is I've been writing some science fiction 
and I, I do it partially because I'm interested in, you know, uh, possibly write, writing a novel, but also because I think it's just a good way to explore where things could go in the future. And um, yeah, I started writing some sci-fi about this idea of what does this look like when, um, you know, companies start creating these like semi-sovereign territories where they've got, and, you know, I think we've seen some of this kind of thing historically with, with like company towns and that can go down some, some pretty, um, uh, dangerous paths in terms of companies controlling all the aspects of people's lives. And I think we'll need to be on the lookout for that. But I also think there's a lot of really interesting, um, opportunities for innovation there. And, um, you know, I think that, one area where I'd like to see creator cabins go in the future is not just to have these creator communities where, you know, individuals can come and meet other people, but also have them be, uh, you know, potential retreat spaces. So in the same way that a, a company used to do offsites, you know, where you'd, you'd get away from the office and go out somewhere. Now I think companies are going to be, you know, maybe remote first, but do on-sites where once a quarter they want to get together in person for a week and do, um, you know, quarterly planning or something like that. And I'd love to have spaces like that where, where, you know, people could come together and do these sort of retreats. I mean, I feel like what is beautiful about Creator Cabins is it you combine like all these different movements. It's like the tiny house movement, and then it's the digital nomad movement, and then it's kind of like a we work and a we live type of situation. And then it's also the creator economy. There's just so many different things that go into it. So I, yeah. I just think it's really cool. I appreciate that. It's funny because, um, you know, it really has played out that way, but, um, that wasn't, those weren't the pieces I was thinking about, you know, back, back on that little Island in, in Thailand in 2018. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's funny how the, the world sometimes develops in, in, uh, ways that, um, you know, create opportunities you you didn't even realize you were you were pursuing at the time. What uh, what uh, island was it? Yeah. Oh man. Um, so I went to a bunch of a bunch of different ones. I tried to avoid all the kind of big touristy ones. So I was all on the um, off of the. Let's see. That would have been the um, south uh, western edge of of Thailand, where it gets kind of narrow. Yeah. Um, and there's beautiful karst. Um, uh, you know, pillars coming out of the ocean yeah. and these amazing sand beaches. Um, so I, Konai was the one that, that I actually was on when I had the idea It's a tiny Island. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's like a couple places to stay. Hardly anyone ever goes there. It's like a, not, you know, uh, a common destination. There's no real infrastructure outside of like two or three, you know, kind of, uh, um, places with some like shacks you can stay in. Um, but that was part of the inspiration, right? It was like, what, what, how could we take this model, right? That that's happening on this Island, um, and, and bring this to other places. Uh, I also really enjoyed my time on Colipe. I think it's, it's either the, or one of the furthest South islands that's still part of Thailand before you get to Malaysia. And man, if you, if you want to see the, um, development happening, in in some of these developing countries um there's maybe maybe uh i, I can't think of a, a sort of better poignant and poetic example than the island of Kolipe, where it's this tiny island you know out in the middle of the ocean but you've got um like a third of the island that's still totally undeveloped 
um, nothing there. You know, then you go from one street over from, you know, just a, a completely undeveloped street, uh, dirt road with like jungle on both sides. You go one street over and you're on walking street and it's this tourist central, you know, with all these shops and everything going on, um, scuba diving and yeah. you know restaurants and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, you go one street or two streets over from there and you're suddenly in this little village, um, of this, this native, uh, community that, you know, has been living on these islands and was sort of the original pirates of the Ottoman Strait and, you know, has like now settled into a couple of these little islands and, um, they're all jutting up against each other. And it's just, just crazy to see how quickly things are changing right now. Thailand is... Thailand is amazing. I uh I've I've been there twice. And um it's one of those places personally I feel like when you go there because travel if you do it right it's supposed to change something, right? Like you're not just mm. oh this was a beautiful place then you go back and how was it? Oh, you know, it was really nice you went there for a week. Like ideally you want to have an experience, you want to come back, change just a little bit. And I feel yeah. like Thailand did that for me both times and i i did spend like quite quite a long time like first time i think i went there for three weeks second time i went there for i think it was just under two months so it's yeah it's unbelievable it's an amazing place yeah do you have any favorite islands or spots um uh, P, which again i I know it's it's touristy but I, i i loved it um kofifi i think it's pronounced if i'm if i'm correct um i honestly half the time i i spent on um just training i, I was in like a muay thai camp oh, so cool. that, that was like a month uh of that time and then the second time you know i went up to like to the north chiang mai and, and pai i thought pai was absolutely amazing yeah uh, and that's like the beauty of you have like these beautiful islands in, in the south and then you go north and it's just it's jungle so you and then in the middle right you have like the city which is this bustling city and it's just it's really got everything and you can find nature and and be disconnected and you can also find you know ways to uh to lose your wallet and phone on a, in in a in a, <laughs> in a bar somewhere yeah. getting getting really drunk yeah <laughs> <laughs> on 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 a beer that doesn't have the exact amount of alcohol percentage on it for some reason uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got everything yeah, what's the uh, Leo is like the the big beer there? Uh Chang, Leo, uh what else yeah. do they have? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have a few, yeah. And I I think Chang, they don't put the percentage of alcohol on it because it varies. So you're like, all right, you know, let's let's see what it let's see what it is today. Huh. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um do you think as far as our ability to broadcast has never been bigger and easier, obviously, connection with our audience has never been more direct. And it seems like for the first, I don't know, for the first decade or so of, of this creator economy, it was mostly free content, right? Like every everything was was free, and now it seems like we're shifting, and it seems like it's always it's always this monopoly thing. It's just like there'll be a couple, and then like everyone kind of hops on the bandwagon, right? Now Twitter yeah. is is discussing this, and there's paywalls for everything, and we're moving away from this unsustainable way of of just having everything for free. Um, do you think, are, are, do you think people, I guess, are going to be okay with, um, paying for so much content? Because if you follow a lot of different people, now everybody's, now everyone's a brand, right? 
everyone's Nike, everyone's Adidas. And if I'm following 500 people on Twitter and another 200 on Clubhouse, another 500 on whatever it is, Instagram, and everyone's a brand and everyone is pay for content, is that going to be a problem? Or how do you see this playing out, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think it is the early days. My my um, you know best inspiration here is often to go look at some of the earliest thinkers and and writers about um, these sort of questions. So if you look at like the late nineties, um, you know, early two thousands, um, you've got folks like Clay Shirky and Kevin Kelly, who were writing a lot about this stuff, you know, um, we, uh, the thousand true fans is, is sort of one of the seminal Kevin Kelly pieces on this. Um, Clay Shirky did, uh, here comes everybody and was talking about sort of how, how some of these things might play out. Um, you know, a lot of those, those guys were adamant that, you know, micro payments were, were going to be a thing. And then we went through this whole phase where it was all advertising based, but I think things are actually coming back around to, to how some of these uh, these earlier um, you know internet folks were, were thinking things would play out, and um, there's a, a great uh, framework for this from uh, Patrick Riera, who's at at a crypto company called Mirror, who I was I was just talking to recently, yeah. and you know, he talks about kind of Web 1.0 is about um, is about links and um, you know just the basic connections between web pages. 2.0 is is about um, you know social and likes and and sort of making the connection via um, uh, social content and then 3.0 you know that the argument goes is is about um, these sort of economic connections and um, a lot of people think that's going to be uh, powered by crypto and I think there, there's a very compelling case to be made for that that um, you know crypto unlocks some of the capabilities to do things like micropayments in a, in a way um, that hasn't been feasible before though there's certainly a lot more work that that needs to be done for us to get there um, I think the answer is actually just all of the above so you know it's not that and this goes back to the kind of six economies of online creators. Um, we're not losing ads, right? Their ads are not disappearing yeah. as a business model, right? They're, they're still going to be around. We're just gaining more layers to the stack and more ways for creators to monetize and more ways for people to pay for content. Um, and so I think you'll see all of the above, right? People are going to, you have to build an audience. And if you want to build an audience, you've got to start out by probably providing free content or providing a compelling reason, you know, for people to know who you are and to subscribe to your thing. And so, um, we'll still see free content, you know, we'll still see the kind of like influencer end of the spectrum where people are wildly popular and, and can pretty easily monetize through things that look more like ads or affiliates. Um, but then we're also seeing this, this new exciting place in between where, um, you know, the, the sort of, um, micro payment type models or the, um, you know, even sort of future evolutions of the, um, uh, kind of Patreon-y type models are, are becoming more common. Um, look, how, how much tolerance are people going to have for, for these things? Um, I don't think they'll subscribe to a whole lot of different creators, but I don't think they need to. I think that's the magic of this. And that's the real insight of a thousand true fans is you don't need to go find a million people to, to give you a couple bucks. You really just need 
say a thousand or, or even a hundred people who really like your stuff. And, and um, that's why it's so important as a creator to build in one of these hyper specific niches where you're going to be able to find the small group of people who are the ones who are going to pay for your content. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what's, I mean, if when, when we were talking about ads, other than YouTube, there's not really a place where ads are being, are, just again, this is off the top of my head, but I don't, th- I can't think of any other place where there's ads that are being put on your content and you are generating income from that. And what it seems like the, again, the direction and what everyone is doing is now you can, and maybe this is through crypto, but you will be able to monetize everything, right? Because certain people, certain people, the big ones have platforms everywhere. And then the rest of us kind of, if we're lucky, we have one big platform and then we're trying to kind of scrambling with the rest of them. Like some people are really big on on Twitter, but there's no way to directly monetize Twitter other than maybe sending them to external links through to maybe Gumroad or to YouTube or to whatever other platform that they have that they can monetize. So it's I I personally love this trend of being able to monetize through everything if it's instagram twitter you know etc cetera, etc cetera. i i think that'll i think that's very interesting i just don't know yeah i just don't know how it plays out that that's all yeah well again i mean i think um youtube is is the clear example of of kind of the winner in this like shared ad revenue model yeah. um and they actually I, I was reading something recently i didn't realize this but um youtube uh coined the phrase creator economy like 10 years really? ago and they that's that was they were the first ones to say yeah what do we call these people youtubers is kind of weird let's call them creators um and then that kind of sat you know latent for 10 years and now it's popping back up yeah um but you know i think they really nailed that shared revenue model i think we will see more of that i believe tiktok actually uh is doing something similar to that for their their big content creators now um and uh, you know, I I, uh, I know some other platforms have experimented with it. The other thing you don't see though is like, you know, on an Instagram, for instance, I don't think you can directly monetize ad revenue share. But a lot of those big creators, right? As a result, what they're doing is another form of advertising that's a little more um, subterfuge, which is like affiliate links, mm-hmm. um, which is basically just advertising. It's just a, a different form of it. Yeah. Um, and look, I, I, again, I think it's an it's an all of the above buffet, uh, and that's that's why we're having this Cambrian explosion moment because it's not just about you know one micro payments or ads or or um, subscriptions or anything. It's it's the fact that you can do everything right now. Yeah, it's almost too much. Like there's just yeah, yeah you know, there's there's OnlyFans and there's um, I don't know what else. There's just there's the the amount of platforms. It's endless. Right, like you said, TikTok. There's Snapchat. I don't know if people who are still using Snapchat, but I, I, from what I understand, it's still popular. Yeah, yeah. My wife's a middle school counselor, and uh, <laughs> believe me, the kids are still using Snapchat for texting um, <laughs> that their parents won't see or something yeah. like. That. I, I thought yeah, they look, moved over to TikTok. I thought they all did the switch. Well, yeah. So I mean, TikTok definitely is popular. I think there are different purposes though. It's more like TikTok's broadcast and, and Snapchat is still for like texting your friends and then the messages delete so your parents don't see them. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think um, if you think about the Cambrian explosion though, why I like that analogy is not only because you get these uh, this massive divergence of evolutionary paths, but also because it converges again, right? What, what we saw with the Cambrian, we, we don't have like 
weird uh, underwater, you know, whatever bugs with like 12 eyes sticking out and all this crazy stuff. Like over time, the evolutionary paths continued to evolve towards fitness functions. And, you know, you, you get a narrowing of uh, and a convergence of, of sort of the paths that make the most sense. And so it's an exciting time. It's an overwhelming time. Um, you know, but what will happen, I think, is, is we'll start to see that convergence towards, um, you know, the different paths that, that are really um, what makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like everyone is kind of carving a slice right there. Like they're making it very niche specific. So I think locker room, what we mentioned earlier, right? That's essentially what a clubhouse for sports. And that's essentially, I, th- I feel like what's every, what everyone's going to do, right? You're going to have, I don't know, Instagram for food or Twitter for, uh, I don't know, specifically something, right? Whatever it is, is going to be, they're all just going to carve out niches, 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 and everyone's going to find the kind of the niche that suits them. And then, and then maybe there it's a little bit easier to find the specific people you want to follow because they're exactly talking about the niches that you like and they are uh, masters in that domain. Right. And that evolution, I think, is why communities are such an important part of the conversation because when you get into these smaller groups of more passionate people, it's less about broadcast. It's less about you know everybody following the one person who tweets the fortune cookies. And it's more about interacting with people in your little community. So, you know, um, uh, my first taste of this was as a a middle school kid. Um, I was a super nerdy kid and I was into, uh, I would go on these science Olympiad message boards and I just freaking loved it and spent all my time talking to the like, whatever, 20 other nerdy kids who were like geeking out about Science Olympiad. Um, and I, I think that sort of thing is is magical for everyone involved because it's not just sitting there and listening to some broadcast thing. It's it's finding the small group of people who care about what you care and then and then talking to them about it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what what more do people want than that? Yeah. And I mean I guess that's what's really cool about again I don't like, you know, I, I keep flattering, but it, it's it's a, just a great thing. Uh, Creator Cabins is, you get to do that in IRL, right? Like just sitting around, yeah. cool people, exchanging ideas, having a free flow of information. And who knows what can happen from that? It's some of the best and most interesting conversations and relationship just happen from that kind of exchange. Yeah, no, I, I, that's exactly why we're doing it. And, you know, you used to have to go to the New Yorks and, and the San Francisco's to get this kind of thing, because that was the only place where there were enough people where, you know, there were, there was like the, the, you know, weird group that you could find that actually match your interests. You don't need to go somewhere for that anymore. It's, yeah. it's everywhere. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm very excited for that. And, you know, would, would love to have, I'm actually, um, I'm very explicitly, right now at least not raising venture capital money and not you know doing a big marketing or any of the kind of traditional like large scale growth tactics for creator cabins because the way i want it to grow is i want the people listening to this podcast you know or the the people who follow the same people i follow on twitter i want those people to find out about it first i want them to come out here i want to meet them i want to hang out with them you know and then we can we can grow the community but i'd much rather start with that really dense, interesting group of people. So you're all self-funded so far? Yeah, self-funded. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's fun. You know, I don't know if we'll, we'll be able to do that forever, but um, it's it's where I think uh, it makes sense to start. And you know, I I 
I'm again, like I said, I'm not opposed to venture capital. Um, I just think it's only useful for a very specific thing. Yeah. And uh, if you're not doing that specific thing, I, I wouldn't recommend starting with it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's amazing. Like I, I've had, so I've been wanting to do an idea for a while now, right? It is in, 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 in brick and mortar. And just if, if this was, if I could somehow translate this idea into a digital idea, I would go run with it tomorrow. But I just have such, I think just, I don't want to say brick and mortar is dead. Brick and mortar is not dead, right? It's it's alive. It's not as good as it used to be. Perhaps it'll come back up. Perhaps not, especially like just coming back from New York. I was in New York a few months ago. Not exaggerating, 30% of, of brick and mortar is just shut down. Just they, wow. they completely decimated that industry. Um I believe it'll pick back up, but it, I think you have to be naive to to think that in the future we're not going to be buying most of our products online. That's just yeah. that's, that's what it's happening. So, you know, I, I feel like when I have ideas nowadays, if it's in brick and mortar, I kind of I, I I tend to shelve it a little bit and and think, all right, maybe this is something that if I really 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 get excited about this, I'm going to follow. But man, you uh you really inspired me. I have to. You know, I have to double. I have to do a double take. Maybe it's something that uh, maybe it's something I'll pursue. We'll see. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that. Look, I think um, uh, I had a, a mentor of mine say one time, you know, you you should always try to um, zag when everyone else is zigging. Yeah. And um, I think I've I've ended up like you said at the confluence of a lot of trends right now. But um, I'm not I'm not trying to. And uh, I actually think that. You know, in a lot of ways, it, what, what we're doing here is a little bit contrarian because um, everyone everyone's trying to create these software businesses and and we're trying to do a, a, a physical thing. Um, and I think the important difference is, um, you know, it's not that, like you said, retail's not not uh, brick and mortar retail's not dead. Everything is going online. I, I think though we're still at probably um, last I checked, maybe only like ten percent. Of, of commerce is is happening online. So there's a tremendous amount of upside left. But what I like thinking about is where are the places where you know the, the physical world is actually going to be enabled by what's happening on the internet. Um, and I think that's a space that not many people are, are looking at right now or investing in. And you see the slowdown of of progress in the physical space. You see that, you know, um, it's, it's actually more expensive and more challenging to build things in real life than it, than it used to be. And I'd like to really question that and understand how can we, um, you know, not just get the, the kind of cool stuff happening on our phones and online. Um, but how can we also start to get real innovation in physical infrastructure, um, you know, that, that I think can unlock a lot of, of things that we're not focused on right now. Yeah. Well, I, I think COVID has propelled innovation, uh, in, in a lot of ways, but I think it's also shown us that there are certain things that you cannot replace, right. Going into maybe like a certain store and, being greeted by someone, right, or 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 a smell of 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 uh, I don't know of, of of food in a store or or clothing or something that you like, whatever it is that you're into, going yeah. into those places, walking around the town, going into the different stores, making a day of it, uh, hugging people, connecting with people, 
Like as much as we want to move forward digitally and, and we should, because, you yeah. know, innovation is, is good. Um, we need human connection. And that's, 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 it's, it's so critical to our health, to our well being, And that's why I do feel like, you know, brick and mortar, I hope it's not going to completely die. I hope it's still going to be around because there's certain things the, the, the virtual cannot replace the, 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 the reality will always be a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, I think what you said there is important. It's going to be about experiences, yeah. right? It's about, um, uh, having something really magical that you can't get online. So, you know, I, um, I spent a lot of time working on, on online grocery, right? And a lot of people said groceries were never going to be online. A lot of skepticism about Instacart when, when, um, I started working there and, uh, um, you know, I think now people are like, okay, yeah, of course. Well, I'll buy groceries online. It's like very convenient and I don't have to think about it, but you know what? I still love going to the grocery store sometimes. And like nine times out of 10, I just want the same things I'm going to eat every week to like show up on my front door. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. One time out of 10, like I really love going to some little, there's a place called Gus's in San Francisco, cool little local grocery store. They've got the guy who knows all the cheeses and he can yeah. tell you about the cheeses and yeah. like, you gotta love that. Yeah. And grocery stores are just, there's something magical about walking around and being like, man, there's like a hundred thousand kinds of food here. Somebody got them all in one place and put them on display and I can just walk around and look at it all and pick whatever I want. Like that's pretty cool too. And so yeah. I think if you can figure out how to develop those sort of cool experiences, um, you know, that's, that's how people are going to sell things in person. Yeah. And I mean, look, if, if we're move, if everything's going to move to virtual and there's not going to be retail, that's not a fun city to walk around in. Like you want to yeah. be able to walk within the stores. You want to be able even to, like, if, if it's in your community to connect with people, to know, Hey, there's Brad. Hey, there's Adam. Hey, there's uh, Jamie and say hi to people. And build those relationships. Uh, you know, I hope that's never going to go away. Uh, you know, I guess t time will tell, but yeah, I think that, I think that's, I think, I think COVID has, I've seen two things happen during COVID. I've seen people that have decided that, you know, this relationship is not for me, whether it's friend relationship, partner relationship, and they've just spent too much time together and they realized, Hey, we're, we're not good for each other. And I've seen other people realizing, look, life is uncertain. Life is short. Uh, I should spend the time that I have with the people that I love. And uh, I, I'm seeing this more with with maybe like the the the, the little bit of older generation, maybe the the people around my parents' age. And you know, they realize there's more runway behind them than in front of them. And COVID has kind of isolated them for a while. And they realize, okay, this, you know, we should focus on what's important and relationships and people that we love are what's important. So I think those are the kind of the two realizations that have happened in the past couple of years. Yeah, definitely. There's a, a an internet friend of mine that likes to say, um, the, the three things you can't do in the metaverse are eat, sleep, and have sex. And, uh, those those are all pretty good things to do with other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although they're working on the third in some sort of <laughs> weird versions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, Jonathan, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, man. I, I had a blast. Yeah, thank you, Roy. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Um, like I, I told you before we started recording, I'm thinking about coming uh, to Texas. 
So yeah, I'll, please do. I'll definitely be in touch, man. And for the people that may think about it, you know, where are the best places to find you, to find Creator Cabins? Where can they get more info? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can get links to all my my personal projects and things I'm involved in at my my website, johnhillis.com, J-O-N-H-I-L-L-I-S.com. Um, and check out creatorcabins.com for the cabins. We, we'd love to... Anybody that's listening to this podcast is somebody uh, we'd love to have out here. All right, cool. Uh, guys, go check it out. I love it. I may be there sometime in the summer. We'll have to see. But, you know, hit John up and yeah. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. I had a blast. Yeah, thank you. All right. Take care, man.